Welcome back to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I have a water buffalo. Joining me is Liz, who has a fire buffalo. Its manure is pure coal. Sadly, Denny and her earth buffalo are, were not able to join us this time. How you been, Liz? Good. It's, you know, world's a weird place, but it's going. Yeah. We do currently live in interesting times. Yeah, which is very appropriate. <laughs> it's also the title of the book we're talking about today, Interesting Times. Before we get into it, Liz, what were you expecting from this one, if anything? Um, I went into this one with a pretty much an open mind. I didn't even read the back of it after I got it from the library. I just picked it up, saw a wizard hat and a butterfly on the cover, and went, okay, it'll presumably include butterflies at some point, and just start reading. That the cover was accurate. I was glad that we were getting to come back to Rincewind because it feels like it's been a long time since we've gone to spend any time with him. And I don't know, it felt like a return to form in kind of a way. It was more recent for me because I did the Color of Magic TV movie pretty recently. Yeah. So. And it was appropriate because a lot of the characters in that come back. Mm-hmm. But before we get into discussing all of that... Let's unroll the trivia scroll as provided by the Secret Extra Sister. Published in 1994, and coming in at just under 90,000 words, Interesting Times is the 17th Discworld novel and 5th in the Rincewind story. The book's title is derived from the expression, May you live in interesting times, which was supposedly a Chinese curse, although no source for that claim has ever been produced. Though, there is a similar proverb, better to be a dog in times of tranquility than a human in times of chaos. The book centers on the Agantian Empire. This is like one of those words I just kind of like fumbled over <laughs> when reading. Agate? Agate? Okay. Something? Anyone who does a pronunciation, I will remind them we're pronouncing words we've only read. So, deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the book centers on the Agatian Empire, which is based on a mix of Imperial China and Sokoku-era Japan. This part of the world is referred to as the Orient with an AU, which combines the real-world term of the Orient and the atomic symbol for gold. The name of the Silver Horde is derived from that of the Mongol-descended Golden Horde, while the Mahjong-inspired game of Shibu Yangkong-san is a Japanese translation of the recurring Discworld card game Cripple Mr. Onion. The controls for the army at the end of the story are derived from the commands in the classic computer game Lemmings. There are many references to the art of war, and the kinds of proverbs commonly attributed to Chinese philosophers. And throughout the story, characters struggling with the Agatian language mispronounce words into wildly different ones, referencing how Chinese languages have many similar sounding words. Interesting Times is translated into German in 1997, Dutch in 1998, and French in 2001. The audiobook, read by Nigel Planer, was published in 1995 and lasts 10 hours and 19 minutes. We open in Core Celesti, the home of the Discworld's bigger gods, where they play games with mortal lives. Fate has just one, as fate typically does, when who should arrive to challenge him but the lady. Aside from a small cameo in sorcery, we haven't seen the lady since the very first Discworld novel, The Color of Magic. But she's been invoked in small ways, such as whenever characters discuss million-to-one chances. I think she's really interesting. Like, we know very little about her, it seems like. But um, I, I think I 
best appreciate how it's not like explicitly clear all the time whether or not she's like necessarily on the side of good or bad. She is just a force in this universe. Down on the Discworld, in the city of Ankh-Morpork, the patrician, Lord Vetinari, is having a meeting with Ridcully, Arch-Chancellor of Unseen University. Since Ridcully is theoretically in charge of all the wizards in the country, surely he knows which one is the Great Wizard. And if he doesn't, he'd better figure it out, because the patrician has just received a message from that mysterious distant and very powerful land, the Agatian Empire. This message demands that they instantly be sent the Great Wizard with two Zs. And while the university is home to many wizards, that particular misspelling points to one very specific candidate. Far from the university, alone on a deserted island and dreaming about potatoes, is the world's worst wizard, Rincewind. It's been a long time, so uh, my memory's definitely a little fuzzy. But was that a plot point with Rincewind in previous books, that wizard is spelled W-I-Z-Z-A-R-D on his hat? I don't know that it was a plot point necessarily, but I feel like it mm-hmm. was mentioned. Okay. I was like, it seems like it's a thing that like is common knowledge and exists, but it's been a hot minute since I've read anything with Rincewind. Those who read Eric, or at least listened to our episode about that book, may recall how that story ended with Rincewind escaping from hell. Uh, There's no word on how he got from there to this island, or what ended up happening to the title character of that story, but I don't really care. Yeah, that's fair. And I think there's some amount of, like, humor in knowing that wild shenanigans just happens to Rincewind all the time, so just along the way with one of those, he ended up on the island. So Rincewind's castaway vacation is soon rudely interrupted when he is teleported back to Unseen University by the wizards, who explain that if Rincewind wants to keep his hat and head, then he will accept this cryptic invitation. With the assistance of Hex, the university's increasingly complex magic calculating machine, the wizards send Rincewind to the counterweight continent and into the heart of the Agatian Empire. In the process, they get something from the Empire, a metal sculpture of something that looks like a barking dog with a prominent lit fuse. Elsewhere in the Empire, we meet Lord Hong. His family, along with the Suns, Tangs, McSweeney's, and Fangs, are the noble houses that control most of the Empire. Lord Hong meets in secret with one of his agents, to fire herb, and it's revealed that he was behind the letter calling for the great wizard to come and lead the revolutionary Red Army. Lord Hong knows that Rincewind is incompetent and cowardly, and with him as their leader, the Red Army's chances of success are about, you know, a million to one. <laughs> so Rincewind arrives in the Empire, right in the middle of what was supposed to be an execution. Rincewind recognizes the ancient, diamond-toothed executee as none other than Cohen the Barbarian. Or, as he is, as the narrative is very emphatic in, in telling us is his full name, Genghis Cohen. Because, you know, sometimes I get a little mm-hmm. bit Genghis Cohen. I don't want you to be getting it Owen <laughs> with nobody else but me. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would uh, love to see a parody of the full song with Genghis Cohen instead. 
That'd be delightful. <laughs> Cohen, who we first met in The Light Fantastic, is a legendary barbarian hero who has survived to old age by being exceptionally good at fighting. There's no mention of Bethan, the druid girl that he married in that story, nor does Rincewind bring up that he met Cohen's daughter, Konina, during the events of sorcery. Instead, we learn that Cohen has started up a gang of similarly venerable barbarians, known as the Silver Horde. Like Cohen himself, the Horde are vicious masters of combat, who have all had hundreds of adventures. With one exception, Mr. Savloy, a geography teacher. He provides a nice bit of contrast to the rest of the bunch. But I also like... Something about the way Cohen is like portrayed in this story kind of see- makes him seem more mythic than he did in the other books. And like, what I mean by that is a lot of old like myths and fairy tales are just combinations of a lot of different stories. And so you have a hero who's done hundreds of great deeds, and so it kind of seems like Cohen has taken on that like persona in kind of a way. So like. There is a version of him who did marry Bethan, and there is a a version of him who does have a daughter. But this version, it's like, that's just not important, so it's not mentioned. Sort of like how the Greek gods had different aspects, Mm -hmm. or like how Barbie can be a doctor and an astronaut and a president. Yeah, it's like for his function in the story, that stuff doesn't matter. He just needs to be a hero here. With the Horde... Cohen has a plan to break into the capital city of Hong Kong and steal something. Rincewind, sensing adventure, peril, and excitement, immediately takes a spare horse and heads in the opposite direction. Before he leaves, Mr. Savloy gives Rincewind a copy of a book that has been making waves throughout the Empire, a hand-copied volume titled What I Did on My Holidays. <laughs> I, uh, based on the title alone, my first assumption was that this is just like one of those like handbound like books you do in elementary school where your teacher asks you, what did you write down what you did this summer? And it's all like big, really scratchy letters. Yeah, I think that was the intended thing that it was trying to evoke. <laughs> Not too far down the road, Rincewind is assaulted by law enforcement who declare in poetry that he will be enslaved. However, one of the guards seems to be on Rincewind's side, at least helping him avoid immediate death. He manages to run from the guards and hide in a mud hut village. This is the part of the story where we learn more about what life is like for most people in the Agatian Empire. This is a culture that has stood virtually unchanged for centuries, rooted in adherence to a strict social order that values following rules. And poetry. A lot of poetry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Despite the abundance of gold, or possibly because of it, most of the people live in poverty, focused on subsistence farming. Mm-hmm. I like definitely get that last plot point because it's like, yeah, obviously if they have a lot of gold, then you know money's gonna mean a very different thing to them than it does in the uh, like in Ankh-Morpork, for example. But I kind of almost wish we'd gotten to maybe hear a little bit more about why they are the way that they are like why do they follow rules so strictly even if it was just like a little anecdote in relation to the original red army or something well i think it's pretty heavily implied that the reason they follow rules so strictly is because they live in what is functionally a fascist dictatorship yeah i guess that's a 
I don't know if I necessarily like interpreted it that way when I was reading through it, but that definitely makes a lot of sense. And like it has been that way for thousands of years, right? Yeah, I think that that makes sense. Rincewind makes his way to an inn where the keeper recognizes his copy of what I did on my holidays as the rallying document of the revolutionary Red Army. Rincewind barely has time to register this before said army abducts him. One of the revolutionaries is a young woman named Pretty Butterfly. She reveals to Rincewind that she had been the guard who had assisted him on the road earlier. Or disguised as the guard, but you know what I mean. And that she and the rest of the Red Army have been eagerly awaiting his arrival. Because while she sincerely doubts his wizardly power, she knows that the revolution needs a figurehead. When she first came up, I was like very intrigued by her. And it felt like, okay, she's going to be like the second lead of this story. And then she kind of just disappears. Yeah, I do wish we had had more time with her because it feels like there's a nuanced character in there, especially when you get to some of the things that that she says and does later. But without spending enough time with her, it just feels inconsistent rather than deep. Yeah, and very clearly she is like a very brave, like knowledgeable woman in this society. And it feels like she would probably be a really nice contrast to Rincewind, who is a coward through and through. There's parallels you can draw with a bunch of other characters that we've met over the stories. Like, Mm -hmm. this is not the first action girl we have seen. Yeah. She's a little bit anemic in terms of personality. For sure. I appreciate her, that she is skeptical of Rincewind, but still utilitarian and, like, knows that he has uses. Mm -hmm. Because the reason why they need the great wizard and everything is because... There's this whole thing that gets explained about the legendary great wizard that assisted the first emperor and summoned up an army of Earth to unite the feuding city-states, basically. Yeah, and her, like, skepticism there, and I don't know, it's just a really nice, like, character trait to see. She is fairly analytical, isn't she? Yeah, and I think it's just like a... Even though this is like a comedy book and supposed to be funny, I still like appreciate somebody who is intellectual like that. Yeah, I think uh, somebody who's smart can very much add to a genre where people take a lot of things on faith, right? Mm -hmm. Also, there's a who's on first bit that results in her explaining patiently, but with definite air of just like, no, understand this, where she just defines (laughs) no acting and O-H, for anyone who hasn't seen the term before, is a real thing. <laughs> Pretty Butterfly takes Rincewind to Hong Hong, which I didn't really register sounds kind of like Hong Kong until I said it out loud. Oh, okay, that makes way more sense to me. I was like, this has to be a reference to something, and I just, like, didn't put it together. And it sounds sort of like slurred Hong Kong. It's like, Hong Hong. <laughs> so Pretty Butterfly takes Rincewind to Hong Hong, and introduces him to some other revolutionaries, including a more demure young woman named Lotus Blossom, and a massive young man named Three Yoked Oxen. They believe fervently in Rincewind's power as the Great Wizard, which he demonstrates by immediately running away to the city. There, he meets disemboweled himself honorably Dipala, the Agatian counterpart to Cut Me Own Throat Dibbler. They talk, and Dipala is interested in the opportunities of bringing Agatian innovations to Ankh-Morpork. I like the idea that Dibbler is not so much like 
a person as he is like a force in the universe. <laughs> and so wherever there is that kind of hole, a dibbler will appear. Very much a convergent evolution, like fills the ecological <laughs> niche. Yeah, exactly. So this scene is basically for history enthusiasts, as the products discussed, uh, silk, tea, porcelain, and paper money, are famously things that the West imported from China to the latter's financial gain. To me, the fact that Ankh-Morpork already has all of these things, except the paper money, is an illustration of how the Agatian Empire's strict isolationism means that they have missed out on potential opportunities. Now, there's no telling if trading with Ankh-Morpork would have led to a Discworld equivalent to the Opium Wars, so it's difficult to say for sure of the net benefit to them, but that's the message I'm getting from the text. Mm -hmm. I don't know, how about you? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially because, like, the rest of the world kind of treats the Agatian Empire and the counterweight continent entirely as it's, like, a thing that doesn't really exist for all intents and purposes. It's, like, it's a thing that, like, exists, but it's not a thing to, like, sit and talk about or worry about or think about on a daily basis because it's, like, there's no connection there. And this scene also does bring up that the Empire's propaganda is that... They, the Empire, are all that exists in the world, and everything outside of their walls is just wasteland and vampire ghosts. Meanwhile, Cohen and the Silver Horde have infiltrated Hung Hung thanks to Mr. Savloy, who has taken on the thankless task of teaching them the ways of civilization. During the scenes with the Horde, there's repeated references to them ravishing maidens, which is played as a joke because they're all very old. But given that they are capable fighters, I see no reason to take their threats lightly. And more than that, I don't enjoy rape in my lighthearted fantasy, especially when the people talking about it are the ostensible heroes. Yeah, it definitely gave me like a case of the grosses. There's probably like other discussions about why that stuff is grosser to us than the casually killing of people. Mm -hmm. I think probably because it's something that we are more likely to encounter in day-to-day -day life. It's like, you don't get a lot of, like, folks just stabbing each other in the streets. Yeah. But, like, like a guy forcing himself on a lady is, like... <sighs> yeah, it's uncomfortably close to home. Sorry to bring the mood down. This but I think, like, we kind of need to at least address it, because... As, like, Pratchett is usually great on all things, like, social awareness, for the most part, even though that these books came out, like, 30 years ago. This is a point where uh, it doesn't quite hit the mark. I think it felt a lot more like a joke because the conversation around, like, this stuff was a lot mm -hmm. quieter, right? And, like I said, these barbarian heroes are all extremely old and probably can't like, you know, do it as well as they used to be able to do. Still, it's like, uh, I wish you wouldn't. Yeah. While the Horde prepares to infiltrate the Forbidden City in the center of Hong Hong, Rincewind has been recaptured by the Red Army. Pretty Butterfly is determined to make him their revolutionary leader, despite the protests of Two Fire Herb, who you might remember as the double agent speaking with Lord Hong at the beginning of the story. We should talk about the Red Army themselves. 
In keeping with the broader culture of the Agatian citizens as being very compliant and respectful of the social order, the army's grasp of revolutionary tactics is basically restricted to putting up flyers and coming up with polite slogans. It's pretty much exactly the kind of protest movement that a fascist government would want, one that is completely ineffectual while providing a reason to clamp down ever harder on the rest of the population. The narration emphasizes that much of this is the result of Agatian culture, but I think it's reasonable to imagine that Two Fireherb sabotaged their radicalization, especially since we see that he and Pretty Butterfly are at odds about tactics and whether they need Rincewind. Yeah, especially because as we go farther into the book, it does kind of seem like some characters start to make this shift out of this very polite protest to like actual like revolutionaries. Speaking of needing Rincewind, the army, the Red Army, brings him up to the wall around the Forbidden City so that he can use his mighty wizardly powers to let them enter. Rincewind says some magic words, and then the wall explodes, which are two facts that sound related until you add the additional context of there being a lit stick of dynamite in the wall. <laughs> the noise soon attracts a number of guards, who swiftly overpower Rincewind and drag him to the palace. In the Imperial Palace, Rincewind meets the Emperor, a decrepit madman who doles out horrific punishments at the drop of a hat. He finds Rincewind amusing and sends him to the dungeon. This scene is also where we learn that Lord Hung, a scheming mastermind we met earlier, is also Grand Vizier to the Emperor. There is some discussion in this and other Discworld books about the role of Grand Vizier and how it's basically required for somebody in that position to be an ambitious backstabber, which makes me wonder if Terry Pressure could have done something more interesting than have Lord Hong be pretty much exactly what you expect in the position you'd expect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely like, if you're going to set that up as a thing, and that's kind of like a joke in the like wider world too, because like... Pratchett is not the first person I've heard make something, uh, make a joke along those lines. It's not like it has to be like a whole 180, but there could be some subversive elements to that. It does sort of get parodied at the end, though, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. So, with Lord Hong gloating over his imminent victory, Rincewind is locked in the dungeon. And who should be in the cell next to him but Two Flower, imprisoned for authoring that treasonous tome, what I did on my holidays. I was like so pleasantly surprised because like I loved Two Flower and I just like assumed that he wouldn't actually make an appearance in this book. It's our boy. I know. I was like, Two Flower. He's just very endearing. A guy that you and just you enjoy, mm -hmm. especially in contrast to Bridswin's incessant pessimism. Yeah, like Two Flower's optimism is just uh, like so nice. And yeah, it's usually played for comedy, but it's still, like, nice to see. Elsewhere in the Forbidden City, the Silver Horde have snuck in through the sewer system and are wandering around disguised as eunuchs, who are basically civil servants here. The Horde kidnaps a tax collector named Six Beneficent Winds to serve as their guide, and he promptly leads them to the dojo where the Emperor's elite ninja squad is training. Having done their best to pretend at being civilized, the Horde have a chance to let loose. 
I'd like to take this opportunity to give a shout out to any aspiring writers in our audience and suggest that the whole concept of ninjas as highly trained elite warriors with martial arts so good they get magic powers is at this point less interesting than peasants who infiltrate places of importance as menial laborers and just surprise attack. Yeah, that is like one thing that's really nice about like Cohen and the group's whole scheme is that it's like it's very not dramatic, which allows like the comedy and the like characters to play off of each other a whole lot more cuz like an action scene is fun, but when that's like the entire book, I think it gets a little less fun. Yeah. It's got to be interesting, right? It's got to tell us stuff mm-hmm. about the characters. Mm-hmm. This one does. Yeah. It illustrates the skill of the barbarian heroes, despite and also partially because of their old age. There's a good moment where Six Beneficent Winds reflects on trying to play games with his grandpa mm-hmm. in like the comparable level of skill that the grandfather like showed in the game being demonstrated mm-hmm. by the silver hoarded combat. Yeah, and it, it's like, it's an argument that makes a lot of sense. So, like, why not just apply it to combat in a fiction book? Although there's, like, probably some potential like explanation in the fact that belief is a, a force of the universe in the Discworld. And so Cohen might have some enhanced strength and stuff because so many people know his legend. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And especially because, like, you know, like, mind over matter in kind of a way, like... There are, like, always studies done about, like, how older people who try to stay really active and think of themselves really fit tend to, like, be healthier than just your average elderly person. And so, like, kind of just, like, extrapolating that and being like, well, these people are convinced they're heroes and the entire world believes they're heroes, so they're heroes and their age doesn't really matter. While Cohen and the Silver Horde slaughter the ninjas, Rincewind's cell is unlocked by a guard that mysteriously drops dead. Sensing a trap, the wizard unlocks two flower cell as well, and soon afterwards they find the rest of the Red Army. It's revealed that Pretty Butterfly and Lotus Blossom are actually two flowers' daughters, and that he had a wife who has passed away. What did you think of this? Like finding out that Two Flower like was married and had kids. I think my gut reaction is like, well, he was like gone for years right months at least yeah and i know it happens like in the real world but it just feels very weird for like a parent to just like get up and leave their children and so then i was like well maybe like i'm not entirely clear on how old pretty butterfly and lotus blossom are so like maybe that was before they were born possibly or like maybe because they seem to be adults at the time of this story right maybe they were Mm -hmm. already like adults at that point Maybe. Like, it is weird. Yeah. And if they're, like, grown adults in their 20s or whatever, that's definitely like, okay, yeah, I mean, like, a parent just, like, taking a vacation for a couple months is cool, whatever. But I don't know. I was just like, that's what I immediately thought because I just was imagining them to be younger and then I didn't imagine the gap between this story and the other books with Rincewind in them being decades apart or something. It's difficult to say. Yeah, we don't have, like, quite enough information on the, like, timing of anything. Yeah, but that's a thing with Discworld in general. Mm-hmm. I also want to just point out like the whole family resemblance, at least in characterization, between Two Flower and his daughters. I think he has more in common with Lotus Blossom of just like the trustingness of people, whereas Pretty Butterfly has a lot more of his analytical like stuff that he presumably has as a clerk. 
Like, mm-hmm. he does insurance analysis and stuff. So she's got, like, some amount of just, like, the ability to, like, think things through, right? Yeah, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, still suspicious of their good luck, Rincewind and Pretty Butterfly creep through the palace and into the Emperor's chambers, where they find that he has been killed to frame the Red Army. This proves Rincewind's cynicism correct, but he fails to account for the sizable number of guards still in the room, and compensates this for with his usual tactic of running away! <laughs> yeah. Good old Rincewind. If it sucks, hit the bricks! In the throne room, Mr. Saveloy talks with six beneficent winds and reveals what the Silver Horde was planning to steal. And, like, just, you know, a little something-something, the Empire. Considering the emphasis that the story places on clarifying Cohen's first name as Genghis, the fact that he's conquering China makes thematic sense. It's also consistent with his origin as a parody of Conan the Barbarian, who became a king in the later books of the series. I also like the simplicity of their logic. It's like, okay, well, the emperor is whoever is sitting on the throne. So if we get in there and sit on the throne, that makes us the emperor, right? I see no faults in their logic, at least (laughs) while they're pointing swords at me. So Cohen takes the throne, but something seems to be bothering him, even as the nobility pledge to accept their new ruler. Rather than continue running away, Rincewind adopts a new strategy and disguises himself as a servant. This leads him into the kitchen, where Lord Hong, fresh from ordering the execution of Two Fire Herb, is poisoning a breakfast that the staff were preparing for Emperor Cohen. Rincewind delivers the meal and warns Cohen about the poison, amplifying the misgivings that he and the Horde were having about joining civilization. This frustrates Mr. Savloy who explains to the Horde that they are thought of as legends, as fictional characters, and this is their chance to make a true mark on the world. Mr. Savloy's speech is interrupted by a declaration of war. All five noble houses have joined forces to drive the barbarians out of the palace, with Lord Hong at the head. I really appreciate Savloy's, like, argument here, because it feels like it gives the group something to focus on and like a thing to strive for that doesn't necessarily feel like it was super present in the like first half of the book because like yeah they want to get into the forbidden city and steal something but we don't know what at that point but that feels just kind of like like a hollow plot that like in a way I guess like this feels like a real conflict for them to have to like deal with yeah there are stakes now yeah Knowing that the battle is is set to start tomorrow, and that there are several hundred thousand soldiers gathered to fight the seven members of the Silver Horde, Rincewind concocts a plan. Along with the Red Army, he sneaks out into the military camps and spreads rumors, assuring the soldiers that no, the vampire ghosts that live outside the walls have absolutely not come to join the barbarians as a massive invisible army. I really like what the entire like point of the scene is, is that like words and belief are powerful. So like the truth doesn't really matter here. It's like how the believing of something is enough to like turn the tides. Along the way, Rincewind bumps into death and his old friend War, along with War's children, Terror, Panic, and Clancy. Clancy, someone pointed out, 
might be a reference to Tom Clancy, <laughs> the, all those okay. books and video games. Uh-huh. <laughs> it could be a coincidence, but also like it, I could see it. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's a, there's plausibility in there for sure. It's just a very funny like little scene that it's like the one thing I think might be my favorite moment from the book. The rumors frightened their way up the chain of command and infuriate Lord Hong, who decides to relax by indulging in his secret fantasy. Turns out he's a fan of what I call Ankhmoparkian Kabure, or he's a Westaboo. Mm. To anyone who's curious, uh, American Kabure is a term for a Japanese person who obsesses over American culture, much like how Weeaboo refers to Westerners obsessed with Japan. I don't know how big of a thing this was at the time it was written, but exotifying the other is a fairly universal quirk of human nature. In Lord Hong's case, this involves having commissioned a tailored suit, presumably with a waistcoat and top hat, and imagining himself walking down the streets of Ankh-Morpork as their ruler. The, like, way that his, like, secret is introduced is that it's kind of like he has this box with, like, this seductive thing in it. And then to come to this scene where it's like, yeah, he just has, like, some Ankh-Morporkian clothes and he just really likes to dress up and look at himself. I don't know. It's it's kind of humanizing. Yeah. It's a little silly, but, like, in a good way, I guess. <laughs> It very much reminds me of that scene in, like, Stardust where uh, Captain Shakespeare is, like, uh, dressing up in women's clothes. Having spread the rumors, Rincewind sets out to leave, but Twoflower and the Red Army are staying put. Even Pretty Butterfly, who has been so skeptical, shares her father's belief that the logical result of seven people fighting a massive army is that the seven will triumph. Otherwise, the world isn't working properly. Which is a kind of a reference to Seven Samurai, I think. <laughs> Maybe? It seems, like, likely. Yeah. It's statistically likely, but I wouldn't really that surprised if it wasn't. This scene kind of threw me for a loop because I read, I read this book years ago, and my memory of Two Flower in this story is that he's a lot more of a realist, having returned from vacation and back in the real world. But it seems that he still has that blind faith that everything will turn out all right. Which is not really something you look for in an insurance clerk. Maybe he's not a very good insurance clerk, really. Soon enough, the battle begins. And as he flees the city, Rincewind falls into a cavern where he is confronted with a terracotta army. The original Red Army, formed from Earth and animated by lightning, just as the legend said. More specifically, they are an army of golems. Golems were mentioned very briefly in Men-at-Arms, and Discworld adapts them pretty much directly from their origins in Hebrew folklore, although with more emphasis on them as analogous to robots than they were than they are traditionally depicted. This is especially true of the Red Army, because Rincewind finds their control station and figures out how to make them burrow out of the ground and start attacking the armies of the noble families. I'll be real, like, the mental image of, like, being in this big open field and then having these, like, terracotta soldiers, like, digging their way out is a terrifying image. Yeah. You see those hands? They burst out of the ground like daisies. Mm-hmm. It's like I would <laughs> turn and run as fast as I could and never look back. 
Yeah. And we make fun of Rinsford for being a coward, but he does... Like, I think I would probably act the same way if I was put in most of the situations he ends up in. Yeah, it, it, it seems valid. During this whole battle, Mr. Saveloy becomes very much a barbarian himself. Now, not quite as effective as the rest of the Silver Horde, but like just as passionate. The armies of the noble houses flee from the terracotta soldiers, and the Silver Horde is victorious. Rincewind, who has become stuck in the control armor, eventually uses the soldiers to signal for help by way of charades, and Two Flower comes and digs him out of the cavern. <laughs> the scene where Two Flower is like helping him get out of the mud caused by the like rain and just very clay dense soil is just like very like sweet and feels like you know like two friends like coming together again. Yeah, they do care about each other. Yeah. It's just like a nice bit of like calm in all of this because like we didn't really get that when they were in jail because they were in jail. On the way back to the palace, Two Flower and Rincewind are accosted by Lord Hong, who holds a knife to Rincewind's throat and threatens to end Cohen's whole career. But just then, Rincewind is teleported away by the university wizards. That's when Two Flower steps up and reveals that Lord Hong's army had a battle on his home island and one of the casualties was his wife. In search of justice, Two Flower challenges Lord Hong to a duel, one clerk versus an accomplished, highly skilled, and horrifically ruthless warlord. So, naturally, no sooner has Lord Hong accepted the challenge than the cannon that Rincewind replaced upon his first arrival is brought back to where he just was and fires directly into Lord Hong. Mm -hmm. However, there's another casualty. The cannonball also hits Mr. Saveloy, and the Silver Horde pledges to give him a proper barbarian funeral. This whole scene is just like a little graphic. It just like feels very serious in a way that it feels like a lot of the times when characters die, it doesn't. And I think part of it is maybe because Mr. Saveloy is involved, and it just feels like kind of a tragedy in that sense, I guess. We still don't get to see Lord Hong interacting with death, which is, feels like a bit of a missed opportunity. Yeah. Like, a lot of the villains have gotten scenes with death where they've gotten, like, some sort of retribution for what they've done. I don't know what you would do with Lord Hong. Probably him being confronted by his ancestors. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So, as Cohen makes Two Flower the new Grand Vizier, we return to Cory Celeste. Fate says that Rincewind has to have died in the teleportation spell, but the lady reveals that not to be the case. In fact, what arrived in the university is a man-sized marsupial from that mysterious part of the map marked with four X's. Mm -hmm. It has this very nice scene where uh, Rincewind throws a boomerang, not realizing what it is, and the group yeah. he's with just stares at him and smiles and waits. And it's like, I'm not getting involved in another adventure! <laughs> To be continued. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a good way to end a book. <laughs> so that was interesting times. What did you think? I liked a lot of it, but there were enough points that kind of just made me go oof that I like, it's very far from one of my favorites and some of it just doesn't like sit super well with me, I guess. Much as I think that Rincewind is a good, like correct character, for the Discworld series, his books tend to be some of the weaker ones. Mm. Yeah, and like the plot of like this mythical hero sp 
supposedly coming in and being the like saving grace for this ragtag group is like it's a good story especially like with all the beats that this book has it's just like some of the in-between parts I, I don't love other stuff i wanted to discuss we talked a little bit about a geeking culture is very much built on this idea of the way things are done now that's not a, a concept unique to this story many parts of the Discworld and many of the books have prominently featured that concept of the social order and respecting it as something that strips people of their agency. And I've said before that sort of the thesis of the series is about intellectually and meaningfully engaging with the narratives of the universe that surround you, like understanding the story that you are in, right? I think that there's some amount of foreign, like, attributing this to it being in a foreign land that rubs me the wrong way just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely kind of got that because it just like it wasn't like a huge, huge issue that made like the book unreadable. But there were definitely some like jokes or references to things that seem a little racist, honestly. Yeah. And like there is a difference between like being racist and acknowledging like cultural differences yeah but i don't know some things are a little bit wobbling on the line yeah and it's like it's one of those things where like very clearly like project was not going into this and being like actively racist it seems like his experience his experiences and his like thoughts about these things just are maybe not as well informed as they could have been for somebody who lives in our day and age like I said, it's not like a deal breaker on the book. Like it doesn't make it unreadable, but it's just there are some moments that are a little oof. Part of that might be our knee-jerk reaction to depictions of a race because we are like very much vigilant about racism and trying to avoid it and like reject it where we see it. Yeah, and I think that's definitely like part of the case. But also we do need to like be sure to call out racism or potential racism where we see it. Mm-hmm. I think also, like, yes, this is a very much a different culture and it place, but it also goes fairly solid lengths to make sure that they're still depicted as human beings, right? Yeah. This is still a world where people live and work. And mm-hmm. it is a fantasy land, but it's not... It's a fantasy land in the Discworld sense of a place where they're is life the way we know it juxtaposed against fantasy tropes yeah like the empire does feel a lot like how the rest of the books do where you have just normal working people and yeah you do have some like very powerful people who are kind of scummy and awful but they're not the entire group you know it's like a lot of people are just people who live and exist and work and have families and you know the whole other like deal of life So if you'll indulge me in a bit of comparison, I think that you could draw a lot of parallels between this story and both pyramids and small gods, which are Mm -hmm. both stories that heavily feature a structured society based around obedience to the central authority. Yeah. And like some amount of it does feel a little repetitive. Mm-hmm. especially the comparing the revolutionary aspects of this story to small gods. Although mm-hmm. this one definitely focuses on the humor value of a 
revolutionary movement that isn't very good at being revolutionary. Yeah, there are like still some differences between them, but they're kind of like cousins of uh, like books. Yeah, it's a recurring motif. Yeah. I want to talk about the jailbreak scene because Rincewind gets a monologue about the process of revolution and how idealistic attempts to usurp power from tyrants tends to result in the idealists either dying or becoming the new authority. And that attempts to make life better for the people only work if the people are directly involved, with an offhand mention about the need for equitable resource distribution. While this scene does contain some troubling shades of white guy tells foreigners that they're doing something wrong, there are some valid points being made that are universally applicable, at least from a purely philosophical perspective. But the speech is also kind of jarring because up to this point the Red Army has been portrayed as mostly just too soft, and there's just, when it goes into them becoming the new tyrants, it's kind of weird, right? Because I had been understanding them as a message about how a revolutionary movement needs teeth if it's going to enact real social change. Mm-hmm. A protest movement can't really succeed if it can be just ignored. Yeah. But the attempt to add nuance kind of muddles the message and makes the whole story a little bit less effective. Yeah, it kind of, like, there's a lot in this book, I think, for the page count. And I think, like, some of that stuff, like, ends up being, like, mixing metaphors, kind of. Hmm. Like, maybe everything's not as, like, clear and well-defined as it could be. Yeah. But, yeah, I definitely get where you're coming from with that, because, yes. (laughs) There's always room for improvement with these stories. And, like, with every story, really, but... Any other moments, anything that you really enjoyed that stuck out that you didn't get a chance to talk about? I just really like how Hex is depicted as it's like, it is this like hyper logical thing, but also because it is this like super logical being, it becomes a mythical thing with its own like life and energy and motivations and how it still seems like devoted to the purpose that like Stibbins designed it for. We've known ever since, like, The Light Fantastic that Terry Pratchett is really into computer stuff and, like, enjoys it in Discworld. Like, back then there was the stone circles that the druids did. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing about trolls functioning better in colder environments because they're silicon-based life forms. And Hex is very much a computer, like, explicitly. Even some of the things it says are, like, literal error messages from the programming language of basic and i think i especially like that we get to see it like grow over multiple books yeah that's this is kind of what i'm talking about when i say and i've said this before but why i recommend reading the books in publication orders so that you can see this ongoing development of characters Mm -hmm. the way that they were being written yeah because i'm sure if we read these books in any other order i might not have made the connection like to understanding what Hex was at first and knowing, like, what it had been in the previous books. I'd been like, oh, yeah, it's that computer thing, and just, like, brushed it off. If there's nothing else we want to go over, then we can move to wrap-up. Yeah, I'm cool with that. Okay, so, if you enjoyed this, or if you didn't and want to tell us that you didn't, you can uh, chat with us on the Discord. There should be a link in the show notes, along with links to our Facebook page, Twitter, and Tumblr, uh, all of those places, and YouTube. Uh, all of those are places where we share 
and where we will hear if you shout at us. Discord is where I think we spend most of the time and we can have the most direct conversations. I was going to say, yeah, I think that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of us. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. Those always help podcasts get found by more people. And if you really want to support the show, then you could consider supporting us on Patreon, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can make sure that this continues happening and get a chance at the patron shoutout. This month, the shout-out goes to Jessica, supporting us at the wizard tier. Thank you so much, Jessica. Yeah, thank you, Jessica. Before we head out, I just want to say thank you to Liz for talking with me, to Willow Carter for our theme music, and to Devin and Randy, aka the medieval gnome of the Discworld portal, for helping out with the favorite footnote poll. We will be back next time with Masquerade. Liz, would you provide the favorite footnote? Yes. Rincewind could scream for mercy in 19 languages, and just scream in another 44. This is important. Inexperienced travelers might think that ARG is universal, but in Betrobi it means highly enjoyable, and in Hawandaland it means variously, I would like to eat your foot, your wife is a big hippo, and hello, thanks Mr. Purple Cat. One particular tribe has a fearsome reputation for cruelty, merely because prisoners appear to them to be shouting, quick, extra boiling oil. All right, that's it for this month. Until next time, the turtle, the turtle moves. moves.